G'day, and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time interacting with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Andrew Trevor-Jones, and he's a marine biologist and underwater photographer. And we're going to be talking all about the Sydney Pygmy Pipe Horse. Welcome to the show. G'day. So, Sydney Pygmy Pipe Horse. I was talking to a friend, and they were like, you have to talk to Andrew about the Sydney Pygmy Pipe Horse. So how have you become such like so, so synonymous with this animal and why do you love them so much? Uh, I, I guess I've just been tracking them for, oh, it seems like nine years now. Um, I saw my first one in 2011. And in fact, I really didn't know much about them. I was on a night dive with a, with a buddy. He stumbled on one and I sort of saw it and immediately remembered reading about it in a book and thought, this is, a, this is the pygmy pipe horse. I've always wanted to see one. And I was, we were so wrapped that at the end of the dive, it was really rough and we got washed up on the rocks and we didn't care. It was just like our cameras nearly got smashed, but we were just so thrilled to seeing this beautiful little, little creature. They're only small. The largest they get to is about 55 millimetres long, and that's including their tail. And maybe I should take a step back and explain what they are so that you can understand sort of the, the size things. So basically it, it's called a pygmy pipe horse and it's more or less a cross between a seahorse and a pipefish. So most people would be familiar with a seahorse, you know, that has a horse type head and they normally orient themselves in a vertical position. So they, they wrap their prehensile tail around some kind of substrate, might be a sponge, and they're, they're sort of sitting upright with their nose sort of pointing down at an angle. And then you may also be familiar with pipefish, which really just looks like a, a pipe, and they orient themselves horizontally. These guys have some of the characteristics of a seahorse. So they have a, a head that looks much like a, a seahorse, but they orient themselves horizontally like a pipefish. Uh, they have a prehensile tail like a seahorse, so they can wrap their tail around sponges and, and other things in the substrate. And they're a little bit like more elongated, like a pipefish, but they still have this seahorse sort of look to them. In fact, one of the first first ones that it was ever sighted, uh, a, a diver had found one in Jervis Bay, and he sent a photograph to Rudy Kuda, thinking that he'd found some kind of juvenile seahorse, because it does look like a seahorse. But it turns out it was a, a, a pygmy pipe horse. And at the time, Rudy had never seen one before. He, he assumed it was an existing species. And it wasn't until a few years later that a specimen was collected and taken to the Australian Museum. And once Rudy saw it, he knew it was a new species and then set about describing it. And that, that all happened in the 90s. This fish was only actually described. So basically, it was new to science until 2004. Well, I guess they've been known for longer because people had seen them, but it wasn't officially named until 2004. So I, yeah, I saw my first one, as I said, it was very small, 55 millimetres in length. This one was white um, and they come in all sorts of colours, pinks, pale yellows, even greeny colours. In fact, I saw my first lilac one this year. I went for a dive on my birthday and saw a lilac one. Unfortunately, I never saw that one again, but we have seen another lilac one since then and it's still around. Yeah, I saw, saw my first one in 2011 and then it wasn't until about 2013 that I saw... Uh, my next one, and that was a buddy had found some. We were, were diving and we found some small, uh, diving at Bear Island in Botany Bay. And she found one and then she found another one and then I found one, but it still sort of didn't count as, as me finding one. And then over the next 
year or so, various people would show them to me or they would tell me where they were and I'd go and find them, which was exciting. And then it was in late 2014, I was diving on my own and I thought, I'm going to look at this rock and see if I can find a pygmy pipe And I did. And it was the probably one of the most thrilling moments of my life because I'd found it 100% on my own. No one had told me where it was. No one had pointed it out to me. And there it was, this beautiful pink female pygmy pipe and it was all my own. And, I, and then I saw it probably for another month or so on that same rock. And then from that point on, I sort of had my eye in, my brain now knew exactly what they looked like. And I, I, I'd probably seen, I'd probably say I'd seen thousands of them since then. My record was 25 on one dive, but I just, I just love finding them. I know other people that sort of became good at finding them and they sort of lost interest in them but I've just never lost interest in them. It's just incredible to watch, incredible to find. They're usually in pairs. So if you do, if I do happen to find one, I'll usually look around for a second one. The sexes are fairly easy to tell apart. And another, another interesting fact about pygmy pipe horses is the males have a pouch like a seahorse and they carry the egg. And so that's basically how you tell them apart. The abdomen uh, is a slightly different shape because that's where the pouch is. So on a male, the abdomen's more elongated and it's a more more subtle transition from the abdomen to the tail. Whereas in the female, it's a, it's almost a sharp angle. So the abdomen curves around and then there's a, a right angle and then there's the tail. If I'm diving and I find one, I work out whether it's a male or female and then I look for the other sex because they, they're usually in pairs. Sometimes I'll be diving and I'll find a male. I thought, oh, cool, I'll look for the female. And then I'll find another male. I'm going, all right, I've got two females to find. Sometimes you find them, sometimes you don't. They're very cryptic. Even some of the brightly coloured ones can be difficult to find. I will often see the same individuals on the same rock week after week after week, sometimes as long as six months. I know there was a pair at Bear Island that people were seeing on a regular basis that were there for over a year. The problem is sometimes I can go to a rock uh, that I know there were two on and I can look for 10 minutes and not find them. Come back a day later and find them both immediately. So they're that good at hiding that even if you know they're there, you may not be able to find them. So you can imagine the difficulty in finding something that you don't even know is there. So, you know, you're going to spend so much time on each rock looking for them. Yeah. So we've got these like amazingly beautiful little animals. And one of the reasons they blend in so well is because they are covered in these beautiful little appendages. And it has been reported, but no one has really confirmed that they also get algae on them. I can't say for certain whether it's algae growing them on them or it's actually part of the animal, but it does look a lot like the algae that they live in. So it is possible that they're, they're somehow growing the algae on them, or it may just be really fantastic camouflage that enables them to maybe from the food that they're eating or something else in the environment that allows them to mimic the environment in which they live. Interestingly enough, they typically live on sponges. I've seen them in bryzoan, in hydroid colonies, and sometimes in algae, but usually not, not all, all that often in algae, although it does look like algae. So for example, the bryzoa that they often live in does look like algae. But yeah, I think that probably the jury's out. Someone maybe need to do a study to determine whether these appendages are in fact part of the animal or somehow they're able to grow it. Yeah, one of the mysteries of the sea, I guess. Like they are such a new animal, you know, having been described only 23 years ago in a capital city where they live is crazy. Well, it's not even 23, it's only 16 years ago, 2004. So, yeah, so they, they were ba- the description was based on a, on a specimen collected in 97. Um, but yeah, the actual official description only came out 16 years ago. And really, there's not a lot of work that's been done. And unfortunately, that's because there's, there's just isn't funding 
to do these sorts of things. That would be a cool research project, pygmy. Oh, it would be, yeah. Although, how do you collect? I, I guess you could just catch the animal and snip off bits. Um, but <laughs> ideally, you'd want to have the animal. So what you want to do is take a DNA sample of the, of the animal itself and a DNA sample of the appendages and then compare the two. And if it's the same DNA, then, then you know it's part of the animal. Yeah, that would be quite interesting. So yeah. they, we mentioned before they come in all these different colours and you said they're lilac. Do the colours always match where they're living? And do you think that's kind of how, how they change them or do you think it's due to their diet? That's something that I've, I've often contemplated and I don't know the answer to. I've often seen a pair that have lived together for weeks and weeks and one is bright pink or red. And the other is a, a more cryptic colour, like a brown colour that matches the surrounding. So one of them stands out and one of them doesn't. Sometimes both of them stand out. So you might get two white ones together or you might get two cryptic ones together. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to why they would do that. There's a, a soft coral that you find around Sydney. I'm not sure whether you get it down in Melbourne as well. Um, it's called Karajoa. And it's basically a soft coral that lives in a symbiosis with a sponge. So the trunk and the branches, if you like, of the soft coral are orange because it's covered with this orange sponge. But the polyps themselves are white, like really, really vivid white. And you often find white pygmies in these soft corals. Uh, And so being white and, and with the soft coral being white, perhaps it helps to camouflage them. But then I've seen cryptic ones in the, in the same soft corals, so it didn't help. And I've also seen ones that were white over a number of weeks go to a very, very pale colour, and I've seen ones that are very, very pale colour go to white over a number of weeks. So again, why would you be changing colour if you've got something that's suiting it? So it may, maybe just diet-related. Ones that eat a certain food go white, and ones that eat another food go lilac, and others go pink. I don't know. It's so weird. what do they eat? So like most Cygnathids, so Cygnathid is the family, seahorses, pipefish, sea dragons, and these pygmy pipe horses belong to, and they mostly eat small crustaceans. Crustaceans are like tiny shrimp. It's a particular type of shrimp called a mycid, which is the most common food eaten by most Cygnathids. If you look at the snout of a pipefish or seahorse, one of these pygmy pipe horses, pipefish, it's like a tube. And it's rigid. So it's not like most other fish have a more flexible mouth. They have this very, very rigid jaw with a like a flap on the end, which is their mouth. And they basically feed by sucking up the crustaceans. And I've actually watched these guys feed. And I'll be taking photographs. So the flash will be droving away. And they're just busy, you know, eating their food. They don't seem to be too worried about it. And you, and you basically just see this like this sloping sort of action as, as they're feeding. Sea dragons do the same thing. Seahorses do the same thing. Pipefish would do the same thing, but it's harder to, to see because their mouths are even smaller. It basically like, like hoovering up these crustaceans. And it's amazing how accurate they are because you, you see them just swimming along and you can see the mice in front of them and they just move in and, and slurp it up. Yeah, really cool and just, just like a sea dragon, I guess. Like, because they do yeah, exactly look, look like a mixture of a seahorse and a sea dragon. Yep. So they've got their camouflage. Now, that camouflage is it, it's to protect them from predators or it's to allow them to sneak into groups of mice and shrimp and eat them up? It, it'd be to protect them, protect them from predators. I mean, certainly watching sea dragons feed, and as you said, these are, these are much the same. The mice are just there and the, and the dragons you know, come in and, and feed on them. It's pretty obvious that there's a dragon there. I don't think the mice can escape. It'd be the same with these guys too. Any small crustaceans that are there are just going to be there for the taking. They're not going to really be able to escape. 
it's so that they don't get eaten by predators, which, and we don't know what the predators are. A friend of mine, a buddy, uh, we were diving together. I just pointed out a, a pygmy pipe horse. I moved on. He was photographing it. And while he was photographing it, a, a big blue groper came in and, and slipped it up. Wow. Whether that's a normal diet of a blue groper or whether it's just blue gropers follow divers around and eat anything that they they think that their dive is interested in, I'd probably say it's more likely the latter, but there must be something that feeds on them. I can't imagine that they would go without some kind of predator. Yeah, something kind of having a nibble. And I guess, yeah, blue gropers are such a like opportunistic feeder, I feel like. I feel like they would just eat anything. And oh, everything. Yeah. And particularly in, in areas that are heavily dived because you'll get dive guides that are cutting up sea urchins and things. So they know to follow divers around and they're likely to get something to eat. So what's the coolest thing you've seen Pygmy Pipe Horse doing or what's the craziest kind of dive or you've had with them? I've yet to see any spawning. I've seen them getting ready to spawn. So basically they mate in the water column. So I've seen video of it and friends have seen this happen. So basically they will usually swim together when they're ready to breed, maybe latch their tails together, and then they float up into the water column. So they may be five, 10 centimetres away from the substrate, from the, the rock that they're on. And then the female will insert her ovipositor, which is the, basically her egg-laying tube, into the male's pouch and then lay the eggs in there and he fertilises them as, as they go in. So I've not actually seen that. I have seen them getting ready for it where, so the two of them are together. At one point I was diving. I saw them getting ready. I sort of, oh, should I stay? Should I go? And I, went, I left. I came back and they were gone. And I suspect that they'd gone up into the water column, they'd made it, and then the surge had taken them to another rock. So they, wow. you know, it wasn't like they died or anything, but they just... Swept off in the course of love. Off. But what probably a really cool thing I saw, it may have been in preparation for... For spawning or it may simply have been part of their courtship ritual very surgy day so there's a lot of water movement current was quite strong i found a male in fact it was a male i'd seen before and he was he was sitting on a um just, just attached to a bit of algae and i then looked for the female i spotted her about 20 centimeters away and thought oh cool because I, I as i said i'd seen this male multiple times before i hadn't seen the female oh finally saw the female just as i spotted her she let go of where she was floated up into the water column and as I said, surge going one direction, current going the other direction. She floated right down and hung on to the exact same piece of algae or alga that the male was on. I don't know how she did it because I can't even <laughs> move myself that, that well underwater. Um, but she obviously just knew how to time herself with the, with the surge and the current and she landed right on top of him. And it was just unreal, wow. really just unbelievable to see. Because they're not great swimmers, are they? Because how, how do they swim no. normally? Do they, they have uh, fins like a seahorse? Yeah, they've got, yeah, basically it's, it's like a seahorse. So if you've ever seen a seahorse swim or a sea dragon swim, they're not really, you know, they're not you know, Shane Gould or any other, you know, famous swimmer. You know, they've got pectoral fins. I think they do mostly swim with the pectoral and the dorsal fin. But it's really, it's more like a manoeuvre with it. It's not actual swimming as such. Yeah. So I don't know how, and I, I guess they can probably also control their buoyancy. Because the way she went up, across, and then down, so she obviously has some way of controlling her buoyancy, but it was just incredible to watch the precision in which we, she was able to land on top of the male, and then they were together. There was another time I was pretty sure that one, a male was about to give birth. His pouch was very, very inflated. It was open at the front, and I managed to get some photos sort of showing into the pouch, and I waited for like 15, 20 minutes, and nothing happened. So I, I don't know how long I'd, I'd have to wait. I mean, I did that with a, with a seahorse once. So it was a seahorse I'd seen who had got more and more and more pregnant, and then one day I thought, this is the day he's going to do it, and I waited for 20 minutes, and nothing happened. 
and I was sort of at the start of a, a long a long dive. I didn't have time to wait. I went back the next day. He hadn't given birth, so I didn't miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I guess that's the thing. You're only down there as a scuba diver for like an hour max, really, usually, or two hours, depending on, you know, what your kind of setup is. And these creatures, it can happen anytime within days or at nighttime or morning or you got to be lucky. you got to be lucky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not a, um, a pygmy seahorse story, but a, a sea dragon story. One of my regular sea dragons that I see at one of my dive sites. I did a dive on the way out. Uh, so it's basically you get in at one spot, you swim out, you swim back and get out of the same spot. And he was near the entrance. So I saw him there. He was he had no eggs. I thought, I'll oh, well, drop, you know, he's, he must be due for some eggs soon, but he doesn't have them now. Yeah. Swam away, came back 80 minutes later, he had eggs. Oh, I, I, no. There was no, there, there was no female to be seen when I saw him before. There was no female around after. So somehow in that 80-minute period that I'd been gone, a female had come up, they'd done their courtship, that she transferred the eggs. And, and I'm thinking all those wonderful things that I saw in those 80 minutes, I would have given up gladly to watch, the, watch that. <laughs> Yeah, but what can you do? Sit and watch a seahorse for all that time. I'll, I'll post a link in the description of the podcast for the mating because I did watch the video as well of the mating pygmy pipe horse. And it is yeah, amazingly the, like a seahorse. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I think this is the, the one on the Australian Museum website. And that's Nick, Nick Missenden. He was, Nick was actually one of the, I mentioned that people kept showing me pygmy pipe horses when I couldn't find them myself. Nick was one of the people that was showing me uh, them at Bear Island. And it was amazing he'd show me and I was just like, how could you find them? And I, I just it blew my mind that people could find them. And now I don't even, it's like it's, yeah, how could you not find them? Yeah, it's, I think I'm going to come up for a dive with you, I think. Certainly come up. I mean, I, as I said, I, I've seen up to 25 on one dive. In fact, it was a dive I did with Matt Smith. But I, I regular, in fact, it's very rare now that I will do a dive at Cornell where I don't see one. And I think I went for well over 12 months at Bear Island where I saw one on every single dive. And then I, and there was one dive where I didn't see one, but that's because I dived on the east side of the island rather than on the west side of the island. Oh, so one, yeah, once, you know, once you know where they are or, or how to find them, they're reasonably easy to find. I won't say that they're super easy. I mean, I did have, there was a period in late last year at one of my dive sites where I didn't see any for like three or four dives. Yeah, and then I found one, and then I found another, and then and then it was yeah that run of bad luck was broken, and I yeah I see them every time now. <laughs> so if you're going down to a dive site in Sydney or a bit south or a bit north, and you want to find one of these amazing little sea creatures, what are some kind of hints, and what would you do as a diver? Okay, so the places you can see them in Sydney, I think Cornell is better than Bear Island for finding them, but both Bear Island and Cornell. Uh, you can you can see them at all three of the main sites at Cornell. You can see them at uh, Shell Harbour, which is sort of down past Wollongong, and also Jervis Bay. And that was where the first one was seen was in Jervis Bay. Probably, really, the, the best advice would be to go with someone that knows how to find them, because if, if you've not seen them before, you're going to have you sort of got two problems. One, where do you look? Because they can be up pretty much on any rock, but it's a, it's a matter of how you look for them. Your brain doesn't know what they look like, so it's actually quite difficult to see. And that was the problem I had for two or three years after I'd seen my first one before I actually found one for myself, is I hadn't trained my eyes and my brain 
to what they look like. But because people kept showing them to me, that pattern matching then sort of got better and better in my brain. And so now I can, I can sometimes just see the tail. So if you imagine if this thing is 55 millimetres long, so you can imagine how small the tail is. I've spotted just the tail wrapped around something from a weird angle and I've gone, I recognise that. That's the tail of a pygmy pipe horse. And I've sort of moved around the rock. You know, the rest of the pygmy pipe horse has shown up. Uh, so... <laughs> But that's, again, that's pattern matching. So if you get used to seeing something often enough, you know, you can see it easily. It's the same as like when you see a friend on the street. There's hundreds and hundreds of faces, but because your brain remembers what someone looks like, their face sort of stands out from the crowd. I think it's the same thing. And there's a lot of marine creatures you can find the same pattern happening. Once you get used to seeing what they look like, no matter how good their camouflage is, for them, it falls, the camouflage falls down because you now have a picture in your mind of what they look like and you can sort of peel away all the, all the bits of the camouflage and see them for what they are. Yeah. Um, so, I, so, so sometimes it'll be the eye, it'll be the tail, it'll be the general movement. So another thing you can look for, um, particularly if there's a small amount of surge, they tend to move out of sync with the surge. So if there's bryzoa, or algae, uh, and it will sort of, the, the surge will go one way and all the algae goes like that. And then just before it moves back, then you'll see there's some, something else move, like sort of late. And then the, <laughs> it goes back the other way and then there's something else that moves back late. And so that's another way of, of seeing them. But again, if you don't have your eye in, if, you, if you're not seeing them before, it can be really difficult to spot yeah. them. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of um, leafy scorpion fish in a way. Like if you've yep. ever seen them, they look like a leaf. And often how I've spotted them is because there is a bit of surge or a bit of movement and then the movement will stop. But the fish will yep. keep moving like it is, pretending that there is a current. Yep. And you're like, ah, oh, I caught you. So it's, it kind of sounds like they're doing the same thing. Yep, it is. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And again, I've often pointed pygmy pipe horses out to people and people have gone, I've no idea what you're pointing at. And then you keep pointing and you keep pointing or they get a different angle and all of a sudden something clicks and they can then see it, and then they can't not see it. But yes, the, the leaf scorpion fish is a perfect example. And red Indian fish, I don't know whether you, you've seen red Indian fish, yeah. they, they will do the same thing. They, they do that swaying motion, and it, yeah, it gives them away. You know, they, they're doing their best to, to look like algae or, or something else, and it sort of falls down. Yeah, I just love the idea that a fish is swimming along, and even though there's no surge or no movement, it looks at a red Indian fish or a pygmy pipe horse, that's moving and goes, oh, yeah, there's a bit of current today. You know, they don't have that uh, mental capacity to, to know yeah. that there is no surge. That shouldn't be moving. So I just think it's a funny image to have. I went to South Australia three years ago, but there's Southern Pygmy Pipe Horse. So this one's the Sydney Pygmy Pipe Horse, the Southern Pygmy Pipe Horse, which is in the same genus as this one and was described a lot longer ago. And I was hoping to try and look for those at Rapid Bay, but unfortunately the conditions weren't weren't any good and we couldn't dive there one day i'll go back there and i'll see if i can find them because if i think if i if i can find these guys i can find the other ones yeah it's all getting the eye in are they the same like do they look very similar or are they quite distinctly Um, yeah they do look they're probably a little bit more elongated but same basic shape so the head shape's the same they orient themselves horizontally they probably abdomen's just not as 
deep. Yeah, look fairly similar. And I would expect them to, to behave in a similar way. So, yes, I was a bit bummed out that I, we didn't get to dive at Rapid Bay because I'd sort of, someone had told me that they're between the old jetty and the new jetty. And I thought, I'll go there. <laughs> if, if, if anyone's going to find them, I'm going to find them. But no, we never, never got to look. Ah, the pipe horse whisperer. You'll have to return. Yes, one day. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks very much for being on. And if anyone Thanks wants to, me. if anyone wants to see any of your photos or anything like that, where should they go? And what should they do? I have a um, Instagram handle, I guess you call it, just under my name. So if you just basically search for Andrew Trevor Jones, you can find me there. Probably if you Google Andrew Trevor Jones, you'll come up with. I've got my own website. Uh, unfortunately, I don't keep it updated much. I'm too busy diving. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to keep the, the website updated and i'm also on facebook under my name so i don't i'm not sort of hiding behind a pseudonym or anything like that so if you just yeah search, search on any of the platforms twitter um instagram facebook or just google for my name andrew trevor andrew trevor hyphen jones you'll see me there and you'll see my photos yes yeah, some of the amazing and i encourage everyone to look at what a pygmy pipe horse and some of your photos look like because they're they're amazing animals and they're amazing Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can help subsidize the running of the show. Production assistance by Georgia McGrath, and music by Dan Musil and his fantastic slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about... Grainer sharks, which aren't dangerous, with underwater photographer Karen Green. This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out.